Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Redeemer. We want to extend a warm welcome on this November morning uh, to those here in the service, uh, those online, and of course those uh, in the greenhouse this morning. Uh, We are so excited uh, to gather in all these ways uh, to uh, listen to God's word um, and to worship him uh, together this morning. But first, let us pray. Dearly Father, Lord, we pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would open uh, our ears, uh, and that you would allow us to listen attentively to the word that you have for us this morning. God, we pray that in your scriptures that you would meet us, uh, in the presence of one another that you would meet us, and that you would show us yourself, uh, and that we would be transformed into the image of your son. Pray for this in your name. Amen. So this morning, if you haven't checked a calendar recently, uh, we find ourselves on a Sunday morning before an election Tuesday. That may be new news. Maybe it's not. Maybe you're watching. Uh, but to say that the climate is filled with fear and anxiety and trepidation, I think is an understatement. Those words only begin to scratch the surface of maybe even some of the feelings. I just mentioned the E word. Uh, and that feeling in your chest, right? Uh, the last several months have instilled us, instilled in us fear upon fear upon fear of what will happen in the next few days. And so what does the Sermon on the Mount and our passage today have to say to us in this anxious, fraught-filled political moment that we live in? How does Jesus want us to live now, today, as a sign of his kingdom come? The Sermon on the Mount reminds us of the truth that God's kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a radically political thing to say. Jesus is our risen king over all the world. He's a king with a kingdom. And that's a radically political act and statement. And today's passage in this um, great passage that Jesus says is that he wants his people to be a people who tell the truth. Today's sermon is all about truth and why it matters, especially today. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, or on your screens to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. In this short little passage, Jesus instructs us in a deeply challenging way. Uh, On the surface, it might seem kind of simple, and we might dismiss the conclusion, like Jesus says, don't make an oath, got it, okay, won't do that, Uh, and let our yes be yes and our no be no. We can wrap up and and go home, right? Well, what's so difficult and hard about that? Well, actually everything. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning as we discover it today. The command for Jesus is for his people, his community, to be a community who tells the truth. And Jesus has two big points today, and they all all revolve around what we call truth-telling. The first point is that God, is that Jesus says, don't use God to manipulate others. And the second point we're going to look at is be truthful witnesses. So don't use God to manipulate others and be truthful witnesses. The hard reality is that as we look in at ourselves, as we look around at our community, the hard reality is that we are far more comfortable living with lies than with living in the truth. The truth is hard. Uh, At a simple level, I got a question for you. How do you get people to believe you? How is trust earned? It's a situation we've all faced before, right? Ever apply for a job 
and you have to bolster those credentials. What have you been doing? <laughs> Ever inflated the viability of a project? Oh yeah, it's gonna work out, it's gonna work out. It might not, but I gotta say, I gotta say it does, right? We can fudge around the edges in hopes that we can then get someone who will then be persuaded to accept what we're doing or who we are or what we're up to. Uh, college students, I know this is hard when applying for jobs and they want experience. How creative are we allowed to be? It's like, how do I write my cover letter and say, um, I really need this job. I know I've never done it before, but believe me, I'm going to be amazing, right? Like, we, we know we can't write that because that will go into the trash bin. Uh, or maybe you're a high schooler applying for college, and the college wants to know, okay, why do you want to come study at blank university? And so you're writing the application letter, and you know you can't say, well, I want to go to this college because my parents are making me. That's probably not what they're looking for. Um, or my brother or sister goes there. Probably, again, not what they're looking for. Or let's be honest, I got, I got to get a job, and this seems to be a pathway to that. Um, those are all the things we know we can't say, so what do we say, right? And that's where that question comes up. Where's the truth? What all these situations and more tell us is that the truth is sometimes a hard sell. It's not pretty. And sometimes we feel like the truth could use some help or at least maybe a better marketing strategy. It's hard to tell the truth in these small areas, and it only gets harder, I would argue, when more is on the line, when much more is on the line. And Jesus commands us to be truthful and let the truth be enough. And so let's start with that first point. Jesus' first point, how do we get people to trust us? Well, first point, don't use God to manipulate others. Jesus begins in verse 33. Again, you've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oath, the, the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Jesus' first point is don't use God to manipulate others. I don't know about you, but I, when I think about taking an oath, I think of that scene in a movie or on TV, like I haven't had to do this in person, uh, where they place their hand on a Bible, right, and swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help them God, right, in the court of law. Well, that's where our brains go, and that might have been where the ancient Israelites' brain went, but when they heard Jesus' commandment, we need to understand the context of those first people who heard it. Where did, where did their brains go? So when we think of swearing an oath, we may think of a TV courtroom. But when ancient Israelites thought about this, they thought about the Ten Commandments, those famous ten out of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And so if you have your Bibles, flip back to the second book of the Bible. It's called the book of Exodus. And in chapter 20, God gives ten kind of big things that he wants his people to live by. These are like the massive ten to orient the life of God's people. Now, a crash course here in Exodus, when God gives his people the Ten Commandments, they're an outline of the type of people God wants his people to be. This is how you're going to image God. They are now God's people, but now they have to behave as God's people, right? Why? Because God wants his people to show the world what he looks like. And so the law is the way that that happens. And so when you read a Ten Commandment or any law in the Old Testament, the idea behind that that we should be thinking is, so this is what God is like because the law images who God is. And so in Exodus 20, verse 7, we come to a famously misunderstood commandment. It's the third command, and it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, if you grew up like I did, this is one of the reasons why you couldn't say all those bad words, right? This is the no swearing prohibition. 
we take swearing to be like bad language. Now, just hear me out, it does speak to that. Our speech should be beautiful. This is not an excuse to just start swearing all over the place. Uh, but this command has so much more to say to us than just not using bad language. The key question we want to ask when we see a verse like this, to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, is to ask rather simply, okay, what does it mean to take God's name in vain? What is vain here? What is vanity? Uh, to be used in vain is to be used for a careless purpose or even a false purpose. The idea here, it's a way of using God's name that is careless or, out, or without regard for its importance. This raises the dilemma of how we're going to use God's name as a community. Now, of course, this warns off the, 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 the cursing, right? Because that's flippant and careless of God's actual name. But what we're looking at is that we're going to use God's name in ways that he would approve or disapprove of. The reality about this commandment is that when God's name is spoken, one is actually invoking God or some claim on him. And that's where we want to go. We want to be careful about what we attach God's name to. Because whatever we say in God's name implies a connection to him. And it's simply asking God to back you up and to vouch what you're saying for others. Here's where the truth element, the trust element comes in. You want to invoke God's name because you know, and when we do that, you're going to get people to believe you. And so using God's name then, to not use it in vain, is a commitment to the truthfulness of what one says. I want to be true with what I say because I don't want to bring God into this falsehood because that's not who God is. God is a God of truth, not a God of falsehood. So in this context, using God's name or misusing his name, this idea of attaching God's name to something that it shouldn't be attached to. It's as if God's there and he's saying, no, 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 don't, don't put my name on that. I don't want my name attached to that thing. I'm, I'm backing away. That's not mine. It's, it's obviously the, the instance of lying and using God to back up your false truth, kind of in the worst case. You're trying to run a lie and like, don't worry, God loves this. And we know that that's not true. Um, certainly the phrase is like, I swear to God that I, that's what Jesus is invoking here. This is exactly what the commandment has in view. But at a much broader level, there are various programs and issues that we can attach God's name to that God simply would say, I don't want anything to do with that. Please don't bring me into that. And so the commandment was to protect God's name from misuse and misapplication. Uh, Jesus continues in verse 34. But I tell you, this goes beyond, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. What's going on here? Jesus seems to be making a big deal about all these other locations. Well, it appears that in Jesus' day, one way to bolster your claim was to, to make an oath by invoking another supporting actor. And obviously, the Israelites, as we just saw, are not allowed to do that with God's name. That's ruled out. And so what appears happened is that people started using placeholders instead of invoking God's name. So I'm not going to swear by God. I won't invoke his name. I'm just going to swear by heaven, because that seems general enough. Um, Jesus says, we all know what you're doing here because we know that's where God lives. You're, you're still invoking God, even if you just use the word heaven. And so someone says, okay, well, then I'm going to swear by the city of Jerusalem. That, that'll be fine, right? I can, I can invoke that. And Jesus says, again, no, we all know that's where God's king resides. So you're still in a way, shape, or form invoking God, and we're back at square 
one. What Jesus is doing is he's closing off all the possibilities of invoking God to back one's promises because we can, back, because we can invoke his name for the wrong reasons. Now, why would Jesus do that? Seems harsh. Seems like, Jesus, we need a little bit of wiggle room here with the truth, right? We can certainly bend the edges. What's the big deal with invoking God for your plans? Simple question. It's going to sound revolutionary. But what if your plans are not God's plans? What if your concerns are not God's concerns? And what if, just what if, the things that we sometimes want are actually opposed to the things that God wants? We often, if we're honest, invoke God's name into our plans and strategies to sell what we want. We make our plans and God's plans the same, and that's just super convenient if we're going to be nice about it. We just overlap them, so we're all aiming for the same thing. A small, small, silly example of this. So I went to a small Christian college, and it was pretty frequent to hear some of, I want to make sure this is clear, my friends tell girls this phrase, small Christian college, context is necessary. So I was like praying the other day, and I think God like wants us to go on a date. Again, I knew I was going to be a Bible professor and a pastor, so like I never did this. But I knew people who did, and I shamed them for it. Um, no, sadly, that would be violating the core of my sermon and not telling the truth. But what are we doing? We're all laughing in that because of how silly it sounds, right? We can see straight through that one. We're like, no, you just want to go on a date with this girl, and so you're invoking God because you think that's going to get you a date. And it's cheesy at best. Uh, we know that God probably didn't tell you to maybe ask her out on that date. Maybe he did, but he hasn't told her. That seems like a problem. Um, what's going on here socially? Someone is, invoking, someone is invoking God to put pressure on another person to get them to do what they want. And this is a mild case of it. It gets worse, right? Because here's what we all know. If we disagree and say, I don't want to go on that date with you. Well, now you're not just disagreeing with the silly college boy. You're actually disagreeing with God. And who wants to do that? No one, I mean, wants to disagree with God. So I, I better do it. As silly as that example can be, we actually play out that plot time and time again, just on a grander scale. That's what we do. We can get so consumed in what we want that we make God's plans our plans. And we invoke God as a co-signer onto our agenda to manipulate others into what we want them to do. God says, I don't want to be, have any part in that. I'm not a manipulative God. And so I don't want my followers to be manipulative either. That's what the third commandment is all about. And friends, might I tell us a harder truth this morning about making our plans God's plans? This is an in-house family conversation. This is American-style politics. Trace the course of our political discourse through our history, and you'll see the violation of this command. Let me say it plainly, taking God's name in vain and invoking God's name to back any political party is what this commandment is aimed at. God doesn't want his name used to run cover for any of those parties because none of them fully represent his kingdom. And we invoke God's name and attach the things he doesn't want anything to do with. And we violate the third commandment and Jesus teaching here in Matthew 5 all the time in political seasons with the way we talk about candidates. 
We use language like God's candidate. But this is the person that God would want. We evoke his name for our plans. To be clear, God's candidate died on a cross outside of Jerusalem and arose from the grave three days later. Jesus is God's Messiah and no one else. Anyone claiming to be is a false Messiah. Christians need no other deliverer. If death can't defeat Jesus, well then Christianity doesn't need saving or defending by anyone. If God is for us, who can be against us? May the Lord have mercy on us. So if Jesus is saying we can't invoke God's name on behalf of uh, our programs, then what are we supposed to do? Well, this is Jesus' second point. Be truthful witnesses. Jesus continues in verse 37. Notice what he says. All you need to say, don't do the oath thing. Don't invoke God's name for your plans. All you need to say is simply yes or yes. Yes or no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes, strong words here, from the evil one, from the adversary. Jesus' second point is be truthful witnesses. The first part of the commandment of Jesus' teaching was not using God's name in vain to manipulate others. Then the second half is about telling the truth to one another. The implicit idea is that when someone asks you something, tell the truth. What do you want to do? What's your response? What's your opinion? What's your take? Now, behind this commandment of Jesus is another of the Ten Commands. Do not bear false witness. The ninth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Tell the truth to one another. Remember, because this is what God is like. God wants truthful witnesses because God says, I'm a God of truth, not a God of falsehood. The church father Augustine put it this way. God is the radiant truth teller. We are liars shrouded in shadow. God is the radiant truth teller. We are liars shrouded in shadow. Uh, Thanks, Augustine, making me feel really great this morning. Um, Is that the only way to view myself? Um, Augustine may be nearer the truth than we might like to admit. Our nearness to God makes telling the truth actually possible. The closer we draw towards God, the closer we draw towards truth. For God has told us the truth about ourselves and has not turned his back on us. And as we celebrate baptism today, this is what we celebrate. God's truth breaking, washing over us, seeing everything that we are, everything that we've done, and knowing that he radically accepts us and invites us into his family. This is the radical truth of baptism, that you are one of God's own. And as one of God's own, as one of a God of truth, Christians are not afraid of the truth. Out of the presence of God, we can do nothing but lie. We have to. We have to dwell in the land of falsehood. The more lies we encounter, the farther we find ourselves from the character and person of God. Makes us ask really tough questions. Why do we lie? And this is just as much about not lying in a courtroom as it is about speaking bad about someone else, either behind their back or on social media. All of this is the domain of truth. And Jesus Jesus encourages us to mean what we say and to say what we mean. If we say character matters, make sure character matters. If we say truth matters, speak truthfully. The danger is hypocrisy. 
the danger in dwelling in falsehood while arguing for truth is that we turn out to be hypocrites. And Christians ought to stand against all falsehood, no matter where it comes from. We have been awash in a sea of lies for the past season, and we no longer recognize the dangerous waters we are swimming in. Yes, yes, I know what you may be thinking. Politics has always been a sleazy business. Kind of goes with the territory, right? We just got to encounter, you know, to some degree of that and filter it out. But friends, I think we need to acknowledge that we have crossed some lines as a community and as a nation. The degree of falsehood we have tolerated is staggering. And it doesn't matter if it's the person in your corner doing it or on your behalf. Here's the problem. If we tolerate lies, it doesn't end there. What we tolerate, we will have to excuse. What we excuse, we will have to defend. And what we defend, we will eventually begin advancing. We've seen this play out time and time again. Lies erode and corrupt, and they corrupt absolutely. In God, there is no falsehood, and his kingdom does not advance through illicit means. God requires righteousness, integrity, truth, honesty, and character, because these are all attributes of God himself and what he requires of his followers. God's kingdom advances along the lines of truth, not falsehood. Or to put it another way, you can't use lies and falsehood to live out God's good purposes for the world. They're counter to each other. They don't end up in the same place. They end up in the opposite place. Truth is what allows us, as Ida B. Wells said, to right the wrongs. She said the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth on them. Or as John 1 says, the light has come into the darkness and the darkness cannot overtake it. We need the light of truth and the light of truth is growing dimly these days. But you may be thinking, I mean, why does truth matter? Is it really a big deal? I mean, we've got a fib here and there, right? Jesus said that the truth shall set us free. And so as Christians, we have a profound stake in the truth because we believe that God is a God of truth. We shouldn't tolerate lying or misinformation from our identity as Christians. When we tolerate falsehood, we actually corrupt the very ground of our Christian witness. When we don't have integrity as Christians, we taint the truth of the gospel. For the simple reason, it's really hard to trust a liar, and especially a liar who then wants to preach the gospel to you. Why should they believe you if there's lying? This is what's at stake. When we don't have integrity as Christians, we erode, we corrode. This is what is being eroded in our current moment is our ability to perceive true reality from petty things to very significant things. And the corrosive environment actually makes it really, really difficult to talk about Jesus because this gets all the way down to the most basic of items, what we share on social media, how we talk about one another. We live in an age of conspiracy theories and of lie parading as fact. And one of the greatest dangers facing the church today is of its members contributing to a culture of lying, both through known and unknown falsehoods. Maybe you just didn't know. Maybe you did. We are sharing lies with one another and calling it the truth. Either way, we are required by Christian witness to not be people who traffic in lies as this cuts against the character of the God whom we follow. Christianity is not a secret religion. 
it's a public religion that, re that relies on public accessible truth. The apostles in the book of Acts says, look what we did in view of everyone. You could see with your own eyes what we did. Combining what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount with how you relate to one another brings God's name into the equation. As a Christian, we carry Jesus with us into our conversations, both in person and in social media. We bring Jesus' name into the toxic environments and his name gets muddied. And this is why Christian witness is in shambles right now. And it's worth asking that if the truth doesn't matter, why? Why does this false story need to be true? What's in my heart and in my life that I so desire the destruction of someone else that I need a false story to do it? We just need to realize that when we enter into the fray of falsehood, we leave Jesus, the gospel, and God behind. And this is why Jesus says in verse 37 that lying is from the evil one. It's not part of God's existence. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer remarked, there is no truth towards Jesus without truth toward other people. Lying destroys community. Let me say that one more time. There is no truth toward Jesus without truth toward one another or other people. Lying destroys community. Friends, we live in a nation where community has been destroyed. Let's be entirely honest. Our political system is so toxic because we are so toxic. We have participated in it. We are in a disastrous state because at some level we do not trust one another. Falsehood breeds chaos and we have sown the wind and are weeping the whirlwind. We must fall on the words of Jesus that you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We are trapped in the bondage of lies and only the truth of Jesus will free us. But woe to those who bind us up in lies. So friends, we return to a simple question, a simple statement, but challenging words of Jesus. We need to ask ourselves some tough questions. Where have we taken God's name in vain? Where have we attached God's name to something that he doesn't want it attached to? We ought to repent. We have a time of confession each Sunday here in a few moments. May we fall on our knees and repent. Where have we lied to one another and not let our yes be yes or our no be no? Maybe there's someone this week that you need to reach out to and ask for forgiveness. Maybe in the next couple days or weeks, the greatest thing we can do is just check out of social media because we're not in the space to carry Jesus's name with us properly into that. Maybe it's a conversation with a friend that you become estranged from because falsehood has dominated it. A false statement got in there and it, and it eroded the relationship. I don't know what your life looks like, but I am deeply challenged by Jesus' words to tell the truth, to be a truthful witness. And as we sit here on a Sunday before the election, may we, may we be reminded of the truth. Christianity needs no defender. It doesn't need saving. The truth is Jesus is Lord and his kingdom is coming and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let that truth free you from all vain attempts of falsehood. Let that truth guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.